Mautzor Yeshuati, Lachana el Shabeach, Tikan Betefilati, Hisham Torah Nizabeach, Le Tikin Mitbeach, Metzor Ham Nabeach, Azigmor Bashir, Mizmor Hanukat Hamiz Beach. Azigmor Bashir, Mizmor Hanukat Hamiz Beach. I don't think anybody has ever sung like the next eight verses. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually have to put it in if you don't want me to, but I'm delighted. You can do whatever you want. That's something that Biddy has never said to Jack in the entirety of their relationship. <laughs> right, you can do whatever you want. Correct, yes. Oh, certainly not, no. Welcome back to Check This Please, a podcast where we're rereading the webcomic Check Please so you don't have to, although you should to keep us company. Today, we're talking about 2.12, post one, Roadie, which was originally posted on September 28th, 2015. I'm Secret, and uh, who's, who's with me having a happy Hanukkah? Hey, I'm Tomato. Hanukkah Sameach, Tomato. Hanukkah Sameach. So uh, here we are, here we are. We've made it to the playoffs. Uh, I can see we're both growing our hair out, and... I guess I've never really, I haven't really been grooming most of my hair this whole time. What happens in this strip? Well, I'm glad you asked. Biddy opens his baking vlog by reminding his viewers that, in fact, he plays on a Div 1 hockey team and they're taking their four-win streak into the playoffs. Samuel Student Newspaper quotes Ransom, Holster, Nursey, Dex, Chowder, and Jack in an article, incidentally allowing us to see all of their playoff beards or lack thereof. Lardo pulls a shoe check on Biddy as the rest of the team debates whether they'd rather discover a person living in their attic or live with 1,000 roaches. So as you can see, an extremely relevant strip full of very important information. So let's start at the very beginning. The very best place to start. I, I guess. Is that something somebody says? All right. So what is the difference between a pie and a crumble? A pie has a crust. Crumble doesn't have a crust. So crumble is usually fruit that's cooked in like um, a baking dish or a casserole dish with a strudel topping. Strudel topping is basically like a mixture of flour, sugar, butter, or some other kind of fat. You can also put a strudel topping on a pie, but a pie will still have a bottom crust. By definition, that's what a pie is. A crumble is a little bit different from a crisp, which is basically also topped with strudel, but the strudel has oats in it and the oats get crispy. Cobbler has a dough topping. So usually it's like you drop biscuit dough on top of the cobbler and that's what the topping is. And a cobbler also doesn't have a crust. I don't think anybody knows or cares about this distinction. Until you laid this out in our outline, I discovered that I had been calling a crumble and a cobbler the same thing. And in fact, I had been calling a cobbler a crumble my entire life. I mean, they're basically the same thing. It's not like a really important distinction. And then you asked, what's a buckle? A buckle is a cake. Is a cake with like high fruit content baked into the, the batter that's baked in like a, a casserole 
or a, a baking dish instead of a cake pan. And the thing with all of these American style fruit desserts is that pies are in theory harder to make and more labor intensive because you have to like roll out pastry. You have to make a uh, pâté brisé typically, which is a process of cutting fat, typically butter, but sometimes lard or shortening into flour and then compressing it, kneading it just a little, very little, and then rolling it out into something that you can line a dish with, and then baking the fruit in that. And of course, because you want to cut a slice of pie, the filling of the pie needs to be able to hold together. So part of the trick of making a good pie is that you need to be able to add enough thickener and binding agent so that a single slice of pie can like hang out on its own without everything just like sopping and juicing everywhere. But you don't want it to be so bound together and like so uh, thickened that it's all like slodgy and kind of like gooey or gelatinous or anything like that. If you put say a lot of flour into pie filling, you will get a very pasty tasting kind of like pie filling. And if you put in a lot of cornstarch, it'll get kind of slimy. And if you put in a lot of tapioca, it'll like gel too much. So part of what's difficult about making a pie is kind of understanding what the right type and amount or blend of thickener is for the amount of fruit that you have with a crumble slash a cobbler slash a crisp, it doesn't matter so much because it's just gonna be kind of like a mess of like, you know, fruit kind of like cooked or like stewed with sugar and topped with something crunchy or something like, you know, sugary, like a strudel or whatever that you then kind of just like plop into a bowl. So if it doesn't hold together, it's fine. And then you serve it with some ice cream. And it's delicious. Yeah, I guess, maybe. To me, it's all about, like, pie crust. Pie crust is what makes pie great. I like what I now know is a cobbler. Not that we really need to get into this, but there's something about the dough of a cobbler that I enjoy. I also like a pie. I forget if I mentioned this already, but you can also put a strudel topping on a pie. And in fact, that's kind of a, yeah, that's kind of a nice, it's kind of a nice shortcut. I don't like to do that because I like crust, but, um... Yeah, it's a it's an acceptable an acceptable pie making technique is to is to top it with some kind of crumble or some kind of strudel, and it also makes it easier to bake the pie. Not just because you don't have to deal with making a and rolling out a second second sheet of pastry, but also because there's nothing trapping the moisture from escaping like the fruit filling. So it solidifies and sort of gels together more easily, and you don't have to use as much thickener. Thanks for coming to my Biddy's Baking Vlog, the podcast, the musical. Since Biddy very rarely or maybe ever gives actual baking advice in his vlog that we see, I think that you're doing very important supplementary work so that we can all finally bake the very perfect, you know, maple pecan encrusted apple pie. I've forgotten what this pie is. I think he's already at the timeline of the comic that we're in. He does it for Jack's birthday uh, at the start of sophomore year. So he's already done it in the extras a while ago. But he makes what he calls a maple sugar crusted apple pie. 
And what I think that means is either that the sugar that he's put into the pastry is maple sugar or the sugar that he sprinkled on top of the egg wash on the dough is maple sugar, possibly both. Uh, I have made maple sugar crusted pies of various types. And what I'll say is you put so little sugar in a pâté brisé that you really can't tell. And maple sugar tastes good on top of a pie but the main thing to watch out for is that it browns much more quickly than granulated sugar. So your pie will look a little burnt, even if it isn't. Good to know. Another very important baking tip. Thank you. I guess my brain just added pecans because I like them. Anyway, here's the question that you asked, but I also wonder, is this actually a debate? Do people really care about this? Well, I sure don't. Me neither. Actually, I guess everything I've just said maybe uh, maybe indicates that I do, but I don't really is the thing. Like if I went over to somebody's house and they were like, well, I've made a crumble, it's what's for dessert. I wouldn't be like, oh, I wish it was a pie. It probably wouldn't even occur to me that they had made like an active decision to not make a pie. I would love an extra where Biddy really got into the nitty gritty of like the world's pettiest internet baking fights. I think that would probably be very enjoyable. And I welcome any fanfic that anyone wants to write, which is Biddy just recounting like whatever the equivalent of the James Charles drama was that happened that I don't fully understand, but I know happened because I broke my ankle and watched a lot of makeup videos for a month. I would like to know what Biddy thinks about the baking equivalent. What does Biddy think about five minute crafts? I 100% do not know what that scandal was about. I only know that it was something that happened. I don't fully understand it either, but essentially he was young and racist and people were trying to decide whether or not you're allowed to be racist if you're young. It was complicated. And most of the people having the fight were like white beauty YouTubers. So it was like a tricky conversation that wasn't well handled. Allowed is such an interesting word in this context. Yeah, it really, it really felt like an interesting conversation. And then there was another beauty guru who was an adult woman who I guess was friends with him, but then called him out. And then it was like, is she allowed to do that because he's younger than her? At which point I was like, oh, oh, I can't handle this conversation. I think all of these people are wrong. And then I stopped watching. And then I stopped taking pain medication also. So I like stopped wanting to watch makeup videos. So this is the wrong place to have like a totally full conversation about this. But so long as we're on kind of the topic, here is what I do think that Biddy would actually, if he were a real person alive in, in 2020, get into trouble for. The baking traditions that he is capitalizing on for his brand are, for the most part, things that were created and maintained and innovated by women of color who were mainly in charge of kitchens during, like, you know, let's say the antebellum era and after as well, like into uh, now. And the white women who were the ladies of the house effectively took credit for those recipes and became the faces of Southern cooking. And now a lot of white Southern women of all means actually do bake. Like, they do actually bake pies. Like, I have no doubt that, like, Biddy's mother actually baked these pies, and it was from, like, baking with his mother and his grandmother that he got his interest in this. But his 
monetization of like this particular type of food and this particular type of personal brand um, would, I think, in 2020, raise actual serious questions about why this particular person is the person who's able to profit off of this particular type of domestic ideal. I do actually think that's like a very long and interesting conversation, Biddy's relationship to like within the comic and without the comic's relationship to race and Biddy's relationship to race. I'm certainly not the person to lead that conversation, but I think it's a really, it's really one worth having. Yeah, and I guess the final thing I'd, I'd conclude here by saying is that there is a lot of like really interesting, really valid, really satisfying and, and thought-provoking to read scholarship and criticism about the legacies of Southern food, the history of Southern food, who gets to control the narrative of like what Southern food is, who gets to profit off of various regional cuisines, et cetera, et cetera. And you can probably guess what the genealogy is there, but obviously check places being written by a black woman. So it is a black woman who is ascribing like these particular hobbies and qualities to Biddy, which is an interesting layer of this that I don't totally know how to parse. But at the same time, like if you remove that and you just hypothetically said like, okay, Biddy, Biddy is a real person and he is making real money and getting real credit for selling a brand based around like Southern baking traditions. A number of surely well-meaning white internet celebrities got in serious trouble this year for effectively doing similar things with non-Western or cooking techniques and cuisines that are sort of like sidelined as, you know, ethnic or whatever. So I have a real headcanon in me that this is something that was created for Biddy to be interested in in 2013, but it plays a lot differently now given how media critiques of food culture have gone. Definitely. As well as the ways in which the monetization of YouTube has been put under critique too, right? So it's like this double whammy. Yeah, it's like if Biddy has any kind of, you know, like product line or media empire or a line of cookbooks or anything where he's like making serious money and like being credited as a creator of like Southern recipes, I think that people would have started asking questions about like, where did these recipes actually come from? And why is this the person who both food media as a critical enterprise and audiences find to be like a palatable face yeah. to sell this particular culinary genealogy? Plus, Biddy isn't necessarily shown being particularly like interested in history or interested in, I mean, he is, right? He writes his senior thesis eventually about sort of food history and the history of cookbooks, but He's not especially motivated, as far as we see, to talk about these difficult kinds of things. And so that would also be a problem, right? If you engage with these things, but don't kind of give credit, don't bring other people into your media empire or whatever, who maybe have a different relationship to that genealogy and so on. I could see him getting in real trouble for that. Like, I'm wondering what his thesis is actually about. Apparently it's about pie. Here, I, I looked at the strip. It's on changing methods in Southern baking after World War II. He says in a text message to Jack, who copies and pastes Biddy's text messages into a Word document. 
Which and that's his thesis. Oh, God. Terrible. As someone who has to read student papers for a living, what a nightmare. What a nightmare for Professor Alice Atley. Isn't that her name? What a nightmare for Professor Alice Atley. She deserved better. All right. Well, anyway. Moving right along from pies to something quite else. This is a comic where we get a lot of shots of players growing out their hair and their facial hair because they are in the playoffs. So playoff beards are a big thing. It is tradition that hockey players cease grooming when they enter the playoffs and then they don't cut their hair or shave again until they're out of the playoffs, either because they failed out of the playoffs or they win the Stanley Cup. So this apparently doesn't go back the whole history of hockey. Apparently it was started in the 1980s by the New York Islanders. A team nobody cares about, even in New York. I met somebody in, in Czech Blues fandom, a cool person even, who was like, listen, you should go to Islanders games because they're like dirt cheap and nobody goes to them. Everybody, it's like the Rangers are overpriced. You should go to the Islanders games. It's great. And I was like, maybe, and then I didn't. Once upon a time, I was walking in my town and there's a mall in my town and I live in California. So the mall is mostly outside. So I was like wandering around and then I saw this mysterious sign that said ice rink and I was like what the fuck so I followed it and I wandered and wandered and then eventually I found myself above a minor league game that you could see into from this mysterious place in the mall that you didn't have to pay money for and it was very exciting but I couldn't tell what was happening after a bit and then I walked away again but it's true you should pay nothing to go see hockey games although the Islanders uh, I don't care about them but it's probably pretty fun the two like sort of subsidiary hockey teams that are near me are in the suburbs and then in another town called Rockford, Illinois, that is, I guess, also the suburbs. You have to drive through it to get to Madison, Wisconsin. And it's like, I'm not going there. Let's get back to these playoff beards. Very important. Yeah. So I think it's worth saying that not all men can grow the same kind of beard or grow it as quickly. So people's playoffs looks can uh, vary wildly. And especially younger players tend to have patchy or scraggly looking facial hair that is really, really ugly and just like really gross looking. And they tend to get it on their chin and sort of neck but like and maybe a little mustache area so like it connects from their sideburns all the way to the other sideburn but like it hasn't really like gone up their cheeks yet or like onto their chin in some cases you want to know what this look is this is the emperor nero look if you're sitting at home and you're you're like what's with this bitch and all these references to roman statues well Go home if you're sitting at home or whatever. I don't know what your relationship to the internet is as you're listening to this, but next opportunity you get, Google uh, Emperor Nero and like you'll see exactly what I mean. In fact, Tomato, I think you should do that right now. I just did. And uh, wow, wow. It's a worthy Google. Yeah, but I, that's what I'm saying is it's like this, this weird patchy kind of like chin strap thing where it's like some parts of your beard have come in and unfortunately they're the parts that make your face look wildly unbalanced. You see that a lot. A lot of 
people can't grow a full beard in their late teens. And in fact, some people can't grow one into their late 20s or their 30s or ever. So it really runs the gamut. And whether or not you're able to, or to what extent you're able to grow facial hair is linked to both genetics and testosterone levels. So in theory, the higher your testosterone level, the better a beard you can grow, but not always necessarily, because it also has to do with your family beard growth history. So there's some link between not being able to grow a full beard and having a slightly lower testosterone level, ergo being less masculine, but also having a normal or a high testosterone level doesn't necessarily like in and of itself mean you will definitely be able to grow a big full beard. So you can see how this is like an easy thing to link to like the NHL's broader like mask rights bro culture. Very occasionally there is a player who will do something other than that. Like some players got faux hawks I looked up a while back. One player whose name shall not be mentioned used to do like a mullet and then Biddy was pictured with a mullet because he can't grow facial hair during one of the extras. So it can happen that people kind of try other things, but it's pretty rare. Like this is part of the hockey world's weird assimilationist. Everybody does this particular superstition kind of situation. Yeah, but then there's other players who literally just like don't touch their hair at all. Like they don't do anything to it. They just stop. So sometimes yeah. you'll get like a Joe Thornton or like a Henrik Lundqvist mountain man sort of look where it's just like, oh, you're a caveman. I get it. You've come down from Valhalla to win the game. But then there's also people who it's like, they're not grooming. So they just look like weird little rat men. Oh, there's a lot of that. It's also like, here's the thing. You sweat a lot when you play hockey. And a scraggly patchy beard that's like dripping with sweat is quite a look. That's all I'll say. When I said weird little rat men, my cat ran into the room. He was very excited about weird little rat men. And you know, that seems appropriate given his family beard growth history. Listen, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, it's like, it's like all of the really famous hockey players are weird little rat men. Like, look at Sidney Crosby's playoff beard. Or like, look at like Connor McDavid's playoff beard. Or like Jonathan Taves' playoff beard. Yes, weird little rat men is the correct epithet for those guys. Every time Homer wrote about them, it would be weird little rat men Taves came from the wine dark ocean. <laughs> you know? Anyway. <laughs> well, this is a great place to segue into whose beard is what on Samwell men's hockey. And the way that Ngozi draws beards is interesting because it's not consistent. But I think I figured it out. So if you look at this particular strip, here's what I think is happening. I think Ransom has full coverage, but his beard is growing in very slowly. I think Holster is the only one with a full, correct and present beard. I think he has like a beard. I think he's the only one. I would just like to share that on the outline you wrote, a mask king, and I have to agree. <laughs> oh yeah, really, truly. I think Nursey has 
full coverage. His beard seems to be growing in like faster than Ransom's, but he doesn't have a full beard like at this point in the playoffs. Dex has some mustache growth and like uh, like a chin strap sort of happening. So he has like full on Nero. Only because he has red hair, it looks kind of D-baggy. Shouter has a few wayward hairs. He has like some one-off whiskers. And I want to point out Chowder Infantilization Watch in the blog post comic when Chowder says, right now it's just playoff fuzz, but it's coming along. And then Biddy says, yes, it is. And then Jack said, oh yeah, that's a good beard, Chowder. And it's like how you would talk to a toddler. <laughs> like This to me just belongs in that corner. So there you go. That's my Chowder update. Well, it's also like the way that he's turning to these like parental figures, like mommy and daddy and being like, look at what I can do. And they're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly the tone that comes across from this. And there would be ways to draw or write this where even if he was showing off his five like crazy hairs, it wouldn't feel that way. But uh, it does not. It fully feels like show and tell at the OK Corral. What? The end. Jack, I think, is going to be controversial because a lot of people seem to presume that he has a full beard. And like, I've seen a lot of fan art of him with a full beard and people who have made comments about him having a full beard. But I do not think he has a full beard. I think his like facial hair is kind of scraggly. More on this in a minute. Shitty has his like full mustache and sideburns, but he already had that. And also his like, I don't know, scruff or whatever is kind of growing in. It seems like he's got full coverage, but it's not fully coming in yet. So it's possible that, yeah, maybe the reason why he has a mustache and sideburns all the time is because that was what he's like able to grow. Biddy can't grow any beard. He has nothing. But he starts letting his hair grow out. And then it seems like Lardo's hair is a little more grown out than like the last time we saw her. But it also seems like she's been growing her hair out like this whole time anyway. And other than Biddy, Shitty, and Jack, we don't see any of these characters very clearly for the rest of the playoffs. So it's kind of hard to like gauge how much more their beards grow in. I know people come to this podcast basically to be like, well, let's talk about whose beard is what. So now we'll keep going with that. I think they do. And that's why we need to get a look at Jack's chin follicles and how they are not as high producing as holsters. Something I'm sure that brings holster secret delight. So my big theory, and by theory I mean fact, is that Jack can't grow a full beard. And here's what's supporting this. Number one, if you click back through all of the extras, which I'm sure all of you are doing every time you record a podcast about Check Please, just to make sure you're getting all of the information. Back in like year one, Ngozi drew an illustration of the five main dudes with their playoff beards. Biddy had a caner mullet. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot we weren't saying his name. Biddy had a mullet. I mean, we can say his name. I just feel bad because one time I said his name on Tumblr and I tagged it to make sure people who didn't want to see it didn't have to see it. And then people got very upset at me. So I don't know the right way to actually like manage that expectation. Well, I don't know what to tell you. It's like back in, you know, back in like 2013 and 2014, people thought that like Patrick Kane was like a cute twink. And he hadn't yet been accused of sexual assault. And Ngozi was into him and patterned Biddy's playoff hair on him. But at the time this 
comic is being drawn. Um, he has been accused of sexual assault, and we are um, not incorporating him into our hockey discourse anymore. So it is what it is, I suppose. But I'm not sure Ngozi would have actually drawn Biddy with a fucking mullet like in the comic anyway. I think it was more of like a cute joke. She draws this picture of all of the guys with their sort of play out, grown out looks. And Jack doesn't really have a full beard. He has like scraggly kind of patchy hair. And then somebody named Snapchat sent an ask saying, among other things, Jack, despite his apparently quite high testosterone, can't grow a beard. You are amazing. And part of Ngozi's reply is, I'm sure Jack's lack of beardage is something that keeps him up at night. Why can't I grow a beard? I'm 23. My father could grow a beard when he was 23. My father won a Stanley Cup when he was 23. I'm a failure. Womp womp. Yeah, she wrote womp womp. I don't know what to tell you. So I think we've got this kind of paratextual support for the fact that Jack canonically cannot grow a full beard. And then I also think it's worth pointing out that the way that his facial hair is drawn indicates that he hasn't grown a full beard. If you look at that full panel while they're all being um, interviewed by the Daily, you can sort of see that like his beard doesn't go like all the way up his face. It's like there's slightly fuller growth on the bottom, but like less like as you kind of like creep up to his sort of like cheekbone and he can't get like totally full coverage. It's like the way that lines and also sort of like uh, shading is used indicate that it's kind of like patchy and like his mustache isn't fully grown in. And there's just like a lot of like very wispy sort of like scraggly lines like creating the sort of like perimeter of of his beard whereas if you look at holster you can see that even though she's using again like very minimal lines it's like they're thicker and they're denser to sort of indicate and they're kind of like also going off of like the line of his face like his jawline to kind of indicate that like he has more beard growth than Jack does. And then if you click through again to the end where they're like on the bus and you look at the and you look at the the last panel of the interior of the bus where Holster is looking at Biddy and Jack and Jack and Biddy are looking back at Holster, you can kind of see that Holster has like a big full beard where it's like his mustache is like three-dimensional coming off of his face. Jack's facial hair doesn't look like that. You know whose facial hair Jack's beard reminds me of in this first time we see it is Marc-Andre Fleury's. Although Marc-Andre Fleury like doesn't successfully grow a lot of beard between his soul patch and like goatee and the rest of his chin. But there's something about like Jack's little like soul patch here that really reminds me of Marc-Andre Fleury and I enjoy that and think that that should be incorporated into how we think about Jack's beard growth. Yeah, so sorry, haters. Jack can't grow a full beard. Correct, agreed. So I think there's a couple things here. First of all, I think it's really interesting that this this question asker like assumes that Jack's testosterone levels are apparently quite high. Like based on what? Okay, my actual guess is that he is not bitty and therefore he is the muscular lead and therefore obviously his testosterone levels are high. Alternately, 
I guess like, I don't know how you test, you know, the testosterone levels of a fictional character, but whatever. But I do also genuinely think that like Jack is 23 and quite muscular. The people he's playing with are 18. They're like little weeds of character. So he does look quite sort of like muscular and developed against them. So my best guess is that's why. But I don't actually know that he necessarily does have a particularly high testosterone level. He's just not 18. He's also had access to like presumably a much higher quality of like training and nutrition coaching over a longer and more sustained period than literally everybody else. Yeah, definitely. Like he has already played professional hockey. And he is the son of a professional hockey player. So there's a certain level of expertise and access to like exercise coaching, presumably that he would have had. I don't think there is any link between testosterone levels and butt size. So (laughs) I truly don't know. Anyway, yeah, I, I'm obsessed with this. I think it's amazing. Obviously, like, I, like I understand why this isn't the comic, like, because it's like a weird, like, giddy thing that I'm obsessed with, like Jack's like sense of testosterone deprivation or whatever. But uh, it's not really relevant to what's going on here. And also, it's kind of like okay to treat Jack like goofily and like emasculate him a little, like in the paratext, but like in the comic he's not really subjected to that treatment quite as often. So like, I understand it. Still, it's like really solid Jack material. And part of like, again, what makes a fun characterization that it's like, oh yeah, I mean, it's like he's, he's deeply like anxious and insecure about like his own masculinity. And it's tied up with all these other perceived failings that he has. Good character, cool character. Do you think he gets mad at Alicia because, you know, clearly his father can grow the beard, so obviously the beard deprivation comes from her side of the family? What would be really wild is if her father, uh, Jack, could grow a beard? So it's just him. He's just the failure in so many ways. That's good. I like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe. But the thing is, you don't really know what you're going to get. You don't really know how the, how the genealogical dice are going to roll, do you? You don't. At least not yet. Um, I also want to note a, a little bit of other solid Jack material in the blog post. So Biddy, for some godforsaken reason, brings Senor Bun on this roadie, which is A, stupid, because... If anyone on the team realized he had him with him, this would be like, I mean, I guess Biddy is a cinnamon roll and his teammates love him and would never harm him. So, okay. But I really, truly think that in real life, if you were like on a college hockey team and you brought your like stuffed bunny with you on a roadie, that bunny would be decapitated by the end. Like, like, I just don't think good things would happen to that bunny. But in the blog post... Someone asks, what would happen if Jack saw Senor Bun? And Ngozi draws this like pretty funny and ridiculous picture of Jack seeing him on the bus, like Biddy sleeping with Senor Bun on the bus. And there's just this like totally insane picture of his eyes really, really wide and sort of colored like with an insane light as he looks at the bunny and whispers, and I have no idea why I love this so much. But the idea of Jack just zoning in on this bunny strikes me as wonderful and very strange. And maybe also is a little bit of like, maybe Jack gets anxious on roadies. Maybe Jack takes anti-anxiety medication on roadies. Maybe Jack sort of like starts to slip back into using Xanax on roadies. And then, you know, by the time you get to years three and four and he loses 
this personality, um, we have an explanation for it. It's all in this blog post. Thank you. Yeah. That's all I got about Jack. You know who can't grow a beard even a little bit is Biddy. Yeah. Okay. So obviously I know the answer to this, but let's just talk about it. So why is it necessary that Biddy can't grow a fucking beard? Like, his face is just naked. You can't give him, like, a few, like, yellow wisps, like, under his nose or something. It can't just be that he has, like, some cute sideburn growth or something. He has to have, like, perfect, like, a phoebe at the symposium, like, forever. Like, please, please. Biddy is a catamite. Let's discuss. I'm really enjoying how much ancient Greek... Uh, check please is happening on this beautiful night anyway previously it was ancient romans so oh you're right i forgot about nero i'm sorry i got i got caught up in my own homer reference oh oh boy anyway welcome back to classics and check please the podcast where <laughs> let us know in the comments who would be hottest in a toga it's jack because of his butt okay anyway listen biddy can't grow a beard and I think there are a couple different ways to look at this. To me, there's sort of two separate issues here, and they're obviously interrelated, but they're kind of, you know, two slightly different conversations. The first thing is, like, not too long from now, Biddy is going to get into a very permanent long-term relationship with uh, Jack, who, as we've previously mentioned, is a whole lot of, a lot of different things. And it's interesting how Biddy is constructed as younger and less powerful and less masculine and on and on and on, just sort of like less in so many different ways and also more feminine and so on and so forth. And it's like, that's been constructed deliberately in the comic as a boon. And obviously like I know the answer and you know the answer, but I also think that people don't really talk about this too much or when they do, it's like framed in this kind of like purity culture way where they're just like, this is fucked up because, and obviously we're gonna get to Biddy and Jack getting together soon enough. So I don't think we should like burn too much time in this episode on this, but it's this kind of thing that's building up to like the criticism that we will make when they do get together. Things like, oh, he's so young and so effete and so underdeveloped that he, can not only not grow a full beard, which almost nobody on the team can, he has no facial hair. So I think there's a couple ways you can look at this. And again, we'll kind of look more closely at this when we get into Jack and Biddy's relationship. But I think one, and this is the way that I think the comic kind of wants you to understand Biddy's construction of masculinity, is that he doesn't have a masculinity that is like, the toxic masculinity, you know, the kind of masculinity with a lot of testosterone in it. That's not Biddy's deal. Actually, I, I personally think Biddy probably has very high testosterone. He's so aggressive. Anyway, okay. So Biddy can't actually grow a beard, but he's still a successful hockey dude. So he's, you know, breaking the plexiglass ceiling. Everything that hockey does wrong and he is able to succeed and he's able to provide sort of like a third way, you know, like another kind of masculinity. I think that's how the comic wants us to understand his construction, that he, by his very nature, by his very physical being and by the things about him, which are not like the other hockey players, he's kind of undoing all that toxic masculinity. I think the other way to look at this is that especially in relationship to Jack, Biddy isn't threatening. He's physically smaller than everyone else. He's younger than almost everyone. Uh, well, 
I guess not the frogs anymore, but he's younger than the first round of people we got to know. He's less financially independent than Jack, at least. He's obviously gay and openly gay, but also sort of like effeminate and presents himself in a way that is gay, as we've discussed every time we talk about how his body language, you know, throws his back out or whatever. And so, and I'm going to put this in relationship to Jack specifically, like he's, he's not going to judge or reject Jack for being gay. He's like a safe object of affection in this way, because he is definitely gay, right? And he's more feminine than Jack, Therefore, allowing Jack, in comparison to Biddy, in any rate, kind of to, and excuse me for this, but to like play the man in the relationship. So in if we're going to look at the gender-ish roles of their relationship, I think part of the reason that Secret and I are so interested in writing about their dynamic and kind of questioning it is because on, on its face, if you don't kind of question it, you end up in this place where you've got this like toxic masculinity, high testosterone Jack, and Beardless Cat of My Biddy, who's just not threatening and is going to allow Jack to kind of be the provider while he like nourishes their home. And so that's a very particular dynamic that's being recreated there, which is what one might call homonormative. No, I, I don't actually think that's homonormativity, but there is a dynamic there which is really complicated and which is not a thing that doesn't exist in real life all the time in some couples, but which because this is a construction and because there are certain assumptions coming along with these constructions is lacking. I don't know if I made a lot of sense, but that's my thought about it. I think the other component of this is that we are all, I'm just presuming, super aware of the fact that this is like an itty twinky stereotype and that it works within fanish tropes because little effeminate bottomy blonde man who is a lot smaller and much more dependent who also doesn't have facial hair is dependent on like larger darker haired older stronger more traditionally mask toppy kind of guy is just like a thing and it's a thing for reasons but i think we've all just sort of like accepted it with jack and biddy because it's like, oh yeah, well obviously that's exactly what's going on. And we haven't kind of like backed up and talked about like, what are the decisions that are made that construct this over the course of the story? And I also think we haven't really dug into like, okay, well why are these choices that are being made? And how does it impact like the reception of the comic and how we read this relationship? And again, I, I am kind of waiting for like when they actually get together to talk about this topic more fully because then it becomes like really pertinent to like what's actually happening in the comic. But I just thought it was interesting to pause at this moment and note that like, yeah, he just like, it's, it's, it's cartoonish, almost like caricature, the depiction of this character, again, as not just like, well, he's less demonstrably masculine, so he can't grow a full beard. It's, he has no facial hair whatsoever, you know, like a eunuch. I also think that it's interesting who this hits the ids of and who it doesn't. And I think that people who find this dynamic between Jack and Biddy as like id fulfilling 
and people who don't tend to have slightly different reactions to their relationship, which maybe, I mean, those reactions can be all sorts of ways, but I, but I think that you are designed to read the comic and for this to be like an itty pleasure. And if it's not, it can kind of like impact how you read it in a way that maybe isn't how the author intended. But then as we've said, like multiple times, this sort of like bends from being an itty pleasure that is geared toward a particular slash audience to being supposedly like a quasi-realistic depiction of like how a liberationist like queer narrative would function in like D1 hockey. And I don't know if, you know, little teeny blonde man who can't grow facial hair functions the same in both of those spaces. I would say that it does not at all. Yeah, and like obviously, I mean not to not to get too into like what am I and who do I know and so on and so forth, but like like a feminacy is a real thing. Like less overtly masculine gay men exist. Those people can also at various points have interest in things like baking and Beyonce and like, you know, domestic life and so on and so forth. It's not that this is crazy, but like what Tomato said, this isn't a real actual human being who has made these choices for themselves. It's an author handpicking what qualities she wants her protagonist to have in order to tell a certain type of story. So I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think it's correct now that we have the opportunity to like contextualize what the meaning of those decisions ends up being. And you also pointed out that it's not so dissimilar from how Parse is commented on as being small for an NHL player. Yeah, I mean, it's like what, again, it's it's like, would anybody read Biddy much differently if he had like the finished shadow of some like very fair beard growth or whatever? He would still look, I mean, just by virtue of the fact that his hair is blonde, drastically less mask than literally everybody else depicted. So why is it so necessary to go to this extreme? Why do we need to stress that, like, Parse is so small? Why is it that Biddy can't be, like, 5'8 or 5'9 and shorter than everybody else on the hockey team? He has to be 5'6 or 5'7, which is, like, ludicrously small. He can't just weigh, like, you know, 150 or 160. He has to weigh, like, 125, which is nothing. I don't want to insist that Check Please follows a strict semi-UK dichotomy, but kind of does. Also, not 100% sure that I'm saying these words correctly. I'm sorry. I've, I keep meaning to look them up and I keep failing to. But since the only gay couple we really get to know is Jack and Biddy, uh, it kind of does. Except for Ollie and Wiki. And obviously we know who the semi is there. I think they're verse. No, I mean, but seriously, like this is where, this is one of the tropes that is leading into this dynamic, right? It's one of the things that became very popular in a certain kind of manga and kind of trans like trickled into fandom. A lot of the sort of, if you've heard the phrase migratory slash fandom, which doesn't exist as much anymore, but tended to be a group of very popular fans who would like follow, like go from media to media to media. And often the relationship was like a shorter, smaller blonde man and a taller or masculine. Wait, is it really? Yeah. Yeah. 
So I've never participated in migratory slash fandom, but I always thought migratory slash fandom was sort of like any two guys, which is just basically like two different Marvel people. It, it, like, it is often any two guys, but like very often they are like a, maybe not always, it's usually one blonde man and one dark haired man, one man, like Merlin and Arthur from Merlin is like a good example of that. That was like a migratory slash fandom. So my guess is that, so like, look, I, first of all, I don't think Merlin has been anything for like, I was about to say decades, maybe like a decade. Having not watched Merlin and only like seen stills of it or whatever, to me, it's like the Merlin and Arthur characters in that don't, unless you're like in the fandom, I'm going to guess, seem to be like one is demonstrably like more mask or like more a set than the other one. They both seem basically like, you know, lads being chaps or whatever. <laughs> uh, and one of them has, has blonde hair and one of them has brown hair. I would say that typically the the actual presentation of the characters is not as extreme as it might be like in, like in Yaoi or whatever. But I would say that the dynamics very much played out in fandom. Not all the time and not in like, you know, the my personal favorite corners of fandom, but very often it would kind of end up in this one like very dominant, very masculine dude and this other like, oh, wilting like tulip of a man who needed to be taken care of, you know, by being fucked. Like very frequently that would be the dynamic. I mean, this, I saw this, this happened in fucking it fandom where like nobody looks like a wilting flower in that, in that movie. And yet it's still, still a thing. So I think the dynamic is just popular. It's kind of trickled into romance. People find appealing in it and then they kind of match it to various characters. But I definitely noticed this pattern in, um, in what I would call migratory slash fandom that I was aware of. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is like, looking looking at migratory slash fandom from the outside, it always seemed to me like it was basically about like two butch guys fucking each other and not having much distinction in their personalities. Or like the distinctions are very surface level. Like I think about Steve and Bucky or whatever, and to me it's just like, well, it's just big, two big sacks of meat. Neither of them is more butch than the other. They're just just two two nothings. <laughs> I totally get that, but I will say, having read many thousands of words of Captain America fan fiction, yeah, of course there are some fandoms that do that. And no, it's not nearly as exaggerated as like Jack and Biddy, which are clearly coming out of like a, a, a certain version of this trope. But I have read plenty of fanfic where Bucky's like, you know, a fainting a fainting violet. That's what, that's the phrase I was trying to think for, not whatever I said with Tulip before. So there's shrinking violet, whatever. I don't know what I'm saying. Bucky is like this like traumatized baby who like needs to be fucked to health, right? And sort of like, he's got long hair and uh, it's or at least it's longer hair. Yes, he's definitely quite butch, right? Compared to like Biddy, but- <laughs> Can you, I'm envisioning Biddy taking like real offense to that. Biddy being like, I have a normal man's haircut or like, like whatever. <laughs> Uh, how dare you? How very dare. Remember how I edited that article about how like one of them had a pink sweatshirt? I can't remember which one of them it was, but like, yeah, they felt really soft. But here's the, like, I mean, I don't know, it's like this softness thing is applied to like literally every male character. I, what I would say, what I'm saying here is not that it is so necessarily always mapped out on the same character in a way that their, that their physical presence in canon like absolutely 
suggests. I think Bucky had the pink sweater because I remember being like, what the fuck? Anyway. It was a hoodie, I believe. Oh, a hoodie, a hoodie. I'm so sorry. Excuse me. Well, you know, he's got this arm. Maybe it's hard for him to put on his sweater. Okay, anyway, listen. What I will say, though, is that over and over again in the fanfic I've read that has this dynamic in it, the physical characteristics of the characters will be shifted in that direction. So, like, for example, in It fandom, there is a character who is tall, played by Bill Hader. There is another character who is shorter, played by what's-his-name... James Ransone or Ransome, I forget which one. In real life, yes, these guys have a different height. Yes, one of them is more broad-shouldered and the other one is more narrow. Yes, there's a size difference, but it's like, you know, normal human men size. Like, both of them, I would say, are like normal human men size. Neither of them is an athlete, neither of them is a bodybuilder, neither of them is like a figure skater or whatever. They're like, they're both just sort of like normal adult human men size. In fanfic, often what will happen is that one of the characters will sort of be ballooned up and the other one shrunk down. And then the one who shrunk down is this character who's very like ill, like he's a hypochondriac. And so his sort of like illness and anxiety and frailness, he's like very frail, will kind of be played up and the other character sort of like badliness will like be, you know, played out. And for me, this dynamic in that fandom reminds me very, very much of migratory slash fandom and the, and the patterns I don't love. So it's not so much that the characters in canon like follow the same pattern as Jack and Biddy quite so much. And I think this is part of why Checklist feels so much like a fanfic. But in the fandom, those differences are exaggerated and exaggerated and exaggerated until they kind of end up playing the same role, if that makes sense. I can't believe I talked so much about that. No, I mean, I think it's good to talk it out because I do think from a distance from any given media or like text, it can be difficult to imagine how the people who are in the fandom for it are constructing those characters within like transformative works. So just looking at like, you know, stills of like the it actors when they were going around my Tumblr friends list, although I'll have you know, they're not anymore. But um, when they were, it's like, yeah, neither of those two characters or like in their physical presence in the film stood out to me as like any more masculine, any more butch, any more like toppy or anything like that than the other one. And obviously in like physical presence, you can only read so much because, you know, dialogue and tone and whatever plot all have something to do with like how characters are just constructed in fan works as well. But from the outside, it does kind of seem like the appeal is gravitating to pairs of characters, both of whom are kind of like, I don't know, just like relatively normative men. Like I don't often see in media characters like Biddy ending up getting excessively shipped. And I'm sure like somebody who has a much broader knowledge of like what the fandom landscape is right now or like what the historical precedents are would be able to point to like different examples, but it's like in all of these pairs that we're talking about, there is nobody who like visually appears to be quite as twinky or quite as, I don't know, you know, bottomy constructed or whatever flawed term we want to use as Biddy is drawn in this comic. 
I agree with that definitely. And I also think that there's probably much more to be explored there than, than we can explore in this particular episode about sort of the constructions of masculinity, what's attractive and what's not attractive. Like even thinking about the Biddy versus Parse wars, right? There are people who do not like Biddy because of his effeminacy and then will write about Parse in a way that is quite effeminate. And it's interesting. Like I think there's something happening there. I don't know what it is. I think it's related to the same thing happening with these characters who are sort of like made more effeminate in fandom than they are in canon. I wish I could find this post. I don't even know if this blog still exists, but like a fairly popular blogger around say like the fall of year three when that was posting made a post about how it was absurd to like, you know, be a bigger fan of Kent Parson than Biddy because Kent Parson is square jawed and butch or something. And I was just like, did you just call Kent Parson butch? And it struck me as so weird that somebody would like read him in that way. Not that I think he's like super effeminate, but he doesn't really strike me as like, you know, having any kind of particular affect. I would say that the way that, okay, this is an insane thing that I'm saying, but I'm going to say it. The way that he puts his hat on in a dramatic moment is like not butch to me. But when he walks into that party, like he's walking onto a yacht, I don't think you see him and immediately go like bottom or like whatever. Like I agree. I agree. I don't think he's especially butch and I don't think he's especially not butch or like bottomy or whatever. I mean, it seems obvious that he is an amalgamation of like several different like personality quirks and that to a certain extent he's capable of code switching and when he's in a private moment with certain people he's able to act a certain way but then his kind of like natural personality is whatever and I think that's something that especially like LGBT people learn how to do but it's also to a certain extent just something that like everybody does I'm offended at the proposition that you would suggest Kim Parson not be 100% authentic at all times. It's not that it's not authentic. It's just that, like, you expose different parts of yourself or you... Of course. You know, you enhance or, like, lean into different parts of your personality and parts of traits, you know, different parts of traits you contain. Actually... When you are with different... in different types of social situations. You know, it's like the whole containing multitude, Walt Whitman so on and so forth. Yes. So yes, I, I absolutely do think that that happens. I do that a lot, like very intensely to a point where sometimes it's a problem in my life. So I think that that's interesting to think about in terms of Parson has color changing eyes. But I'm realizing now also that like Biddy actually very rarely does that. Yes, he changes, he'll, he'll omit details when he's talking to his parents or whatever, but actually his personality, as far as we see it, does not change very much, which is interesting to me. He's very much like kind of hitting the same note in all social circumstances. Obviously he'll have different reactions depending on what's going on, but he kind of doesn't do the compartmentalization thing that we see from like Kent for example. I think that's kind of interesting. As we think about the kind of overarching story about what coming out means, what masculinity means, so on and so forth, I think it's interesting to, to think about that. Yeah, but then I think about the way that he, like, you know, 
acts the same way to his thesis advisor as he would to like his hockey team as he would to like his parents and it's like those are three completely different situations so like maybe you shouldn't be like flouncing into your advisor's office well maybe that's too loaded a word for this particular context what i mean is like he should comport himself differently in like professional and academic settings I agree that that if Biddy were a real person, he should develop that. Like the fact that he, the fact that he, like you know, turns in a pie as a thesis draft, and I know it's like a ha ha comic and it's like a joke, but the fact that he like turns in a pie for a thesis draft and then he like texts Jack like a tweet rant or like a like a text rant that because and, and Jack is just like, oh, I guess I'll like edit this into his. It's like this like flighty. It's like this flighty like you know attitude toward like a part of his life that he should be taking really seriously and we see that throughout and it's so it's like yeah it's like maybe maybe he should have like maybe he should learn to like code switch a little bit better so to speak so that when he talks to his advisor he's not talking to his advisor like in the same way that he talks to like you know his his buddies or his vlog audience like these are all subtly different but this is getting down kind of like a a different path that I think we'll have more opportunities to sort of turn over I think we'll very soon or not too many weeks from now be able to talk about this more fully the next thing that kind of happens in this strip that's that's maybe interesting question mark is this thing with the shoe check Pranking is very big in in hockey, but uh, the pranks themselves are usually pretty lame. You know, when they're not like sinister and rapey, they're usually not that interesting or clever because uh, hockey players tend not to be. Shoe checking is when you basically distract somebody while you're all at like a meal or something so that you can um, apply or smear some kind of like condiment onto their shoe. And yeah, the, the trick is that you need to be able to distract somebody so that they don't notice that like somebody's like smearing something on their shoe. So I guess there's some subtlety to it. Like you have to pull something off, but uh, okay. It's, it's, this isn't like real smart or real clever. It's not like, oh, I know exactly what'll like really get Biddy specifically because Biddy as a person is like this. Ergo, this is a particular prank that will like really register with him. It's just kind of like something that hockey players do to each other. I did find uh, an article on uh, NHL pranks uh, in, in ESPN and somebody says in that article, you know how people say something is uniquely American? The shoe check is uniquely hockeyan. Hockey players have grown up with it. I guess this makes Biddy part of the hockey team. Like he really fits in if they're willing to smear some ketchup on his shoe. Uh, my my only real question about this prank is that in the panel where Biddy gets up from the table, it's kind of hard for me to tell if he's smearing the ketchup off on Jack's jacket. Or is the point of that panel that as he gets up, he puts his hand on Jack's shoulder as he's like going to the bathroom to clean his shoe off or something? And I always read this as actually he's wiping his, uh, he's wiping his shoe off on Jack's jacket. Like that's always what it looked like to me, especially because it's like ketchup would just like wipe off a leather shoe like literally with a napkin, like it wouldn't really even stain necessarily. It would just like come right off. But it 
probably would stain on like the white part of Jack's jacket. So like, I, I don't know, it like doesn't make sense that this is what he's doing, but it also doesn't make sense that he would like leave the table and walk to the bathroom like with only one shoe on to like clean his shoe off. It just like, it doesn't make any sense. But I gather that the point of this panel is that he's able to freely touch Jack and they have this like congenial relationship now. Yeah, that's how I read it. I always read it as him giving one of those sort of like, like manly pats, you know, on the on the shoulder as he like passes him. But it's hard to tell from the perspective. It, 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 it's hard to tell how far away the shoe is from Jack's jacket, which I guess is forced perspective. Is that right? I'm not sure. I guess it's not really forced perspective. But anyway, you can't really tell how far away it is from Jack's jacket. I would also say that I think the reason he might not just use a napkin is if he's trying to be passive aggressive towards Lardo in order to make her feel bad. Like, look at me walk across this dirty floor and just my sock and shoe. Uh, But I don't expect that that would work very well on Lardo. So that's my best guess at making sense of something which I don't think was like thought enough about to be made sense of really. So now we come to the other hockey tradition that is in this strip and it's playing just really dumb rhetorical loophole road games while you're on the bus. And in this strip, they get into a debate over attic versus roaches. I hate this. And I hate it both because I hate this kind of thing in real life and I hate the way that people talk about it in the fandom because I am a Grinch and I am just a hater. So yeah, I hate these like artificial like either or discussions, which in theory can be illuminating because like supposedly it's like what somebody says will tell you something about them. But most of the time in real life, they're just kind of like time wasters because it's like you're never going to be in a situation where you have to choose between attic and roaches. And we'll explain what that means in a minute. But it's just like, that's never going to happen. It's like you're talking about something completely irrelevant. So it's just people going like on and on and on. And it's like, well, what are we resolving here? Nothing. It's just a way to waste time on the bus. I don't hate pointless arguments to a point. Like if they go on too long, they get frustrating. So I actually do enjoy this sort of thing on occasion with the right question. However, I hate this specific question because I do not like to think about either roaches or someone in my attic. So I find this very unpleasant. The full context of this is not totally given in the strip, but you can basically figure it out if you like read this in context with the paratext or the the blog post. Basically, it's the question that they're trying to answer that they end up arguing about is, would you rather discover a thousand roaches in your house or an unknown person living in your attic and it's a very classic like road trip sort of like this or that or like would you rather type of question where both of the options are bad i would say that the breakdown of this particular question is that it's about a known versus an unknown so everyone knows that like a thousand roaches is disgusting and nobody wants to have any roaches, let alone a thousand of them. But like, it's a known quantity. You know exactly how many roaches and you know exactly what a roach is and what having roaches entails. Like it's a relative commonality that you can at least kind of imagine how you'd mitigate. Like for example, by hiring an exterminator. And most people can basically envision like what this situation would be. So. 
it's awful and everybody knows it's awful, but they know exactly like how and in what way it's off awful and like what their own capacity for negotiating it would be. On the other hand, beyond like the basic invasion of space and like feeling a violation of having somebody living in your attic, the issue with the second option, the quote unquote attic option, is that you can't be certain what kind of person will be in the attic. Like it could be someone who's pretty awesome or it could be someone with ill intent and you just can't know. There's no way to know what you're going to get. This particular dilemma as it's set up is like really not plot relevant and it's also not really like thematically related. But I kind of wonder like what if it was? Like would there be a way to use this particular dilemma to tie it into the story? Because as it is, it's just sort of like a mimetic distraction. I think, yeah, if you made it clear in the text that this is about like known versus unknown, I think there is a really easy way to connect that to the idea of coming out and not coming out, which is like one of the major tensions of the text. You know what happens if you don't come out and it sucks for you emotionally, but it's also safe and you can kind of mitigate the like circumstances, right? At least for these characters, for people in real life, you know, it, coming out may or may not have all sorts of different consequences, some of which are like better or worse. And that's a thing, you know, there's no like one way to do it or one sort of calculus to make. But in the comic, it's like coming out is always a good thing and therefore not coming out is always a bad thing. But like the circumstances are known and then coming out could be very scary. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. Of course, in the actual comic, it's always fine, but the tension that it might not be fine is played with. And so that's sort of the equivalent of the person in your attic. But I don't think that it's ever actually like explored in a way that would make this make any thematic sense. Jack and Biddy get to a point in the beginning of year three where they do kind of end up in one of these no-win situations where it's like both of their options are bad. Either they can go with the unknown of ruining Jack's career by starting to tell people that they're in a relationship or they can stick with like the high pressure situation of being essentially in the closet, which is a known. And it would be interesting, wouldn't it, if, you know, there's no good options, such as with this dilemma that's set up here about the attic versus the roaches, was something that could carry through. Because it kind of comes up like again and again in a lot of ways. It's just kind of life. I mean, that's the thing is like, Attic versus Roches is absurd because it's like you're never going to be in a situation where you have to choose between those two things. But all the time in life, you come up to a place where like, you basically have to pick between two not great options. And you just need to decide like which you're going to go with and you're, they're both kind of not good. So I think there could have been a way to like, stake this into the comic in a way that was like thematically relevant but it's just kind of like an interesting distraction that happens over once the one strip can you think of a question that could have been asked and served the same sort of narrative purpose that would have made the connection to the themes more clear or that could have been more directly plot relevant um i can't think of a particular question but i think if somebody had made a comment like or even if Biddy had been the person to make a comment like, well, both of those options sound so awful. What if I just didn't choose? 
Yeah. Why do I have to have, you know, why do I have to have one or the other? Then it would be more like clearly pegging the sort of existential nature of the dilemma to Biddy's personality and the way that he delays making hard choices throughout the rest of the comic. So it's not that like the particular dichotomy of Attic versus Roaches is so stupid, although it is kind of stupid. It's that this is just sort of floated out there weightlessly and then it evaporates. Whereas it would have been really easy to sort of like thread it into, you know, the discomfort Biddy has with having to like make a decision to do something that's not necessarily pleasant. I don't know. Do you have a, a specific question? I think known versus unknown and public versus private are the kind of two major threads that I would say come up in this comic again and again. So maybe a question that's like, would you rather something something be public or something something be private? But I, I didn't have a question in mind. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have a question in mind either. I also genuinely like hate these kinds of questions. However, the sort of pattern evoked by this kind of question is something that you can see in your life all of the time. Like I was just talking to you about this kind of dilemma before we started recording, frankly. Like, you know, should I do something really unpleasant that needs to be done that I should be getting help with, but I'm not? Or should I withdraw my labor on principle, but then it doesn't get done and I end up getting harmed? It's like, well, they both really suck, but what can you do? I mean, this sort of thing comes up in real life a lot, but thinking of like an artificial distinction that's like comical is tough, at least for me. But having said that, I do think that like, the characters' answers within the comic are sort of telling about what sorts of characters they are. So Jack wants to hire an exterminator. And what I would say is that he's obviously never lived somewhere with like this kind of problem because he thinks it's only as complicated as like paying somebody to fix it. And also it like can be fixed. I lived in Atlanta where roaches are endemic. And yeah, I mean... I hired an exterminator and exterminators do jack shit. Or at least in that situation, the exterminator did jack shit. Maybe in some other context where it's like, you know, the infestation is rooted to like something specific that can be fixed. Maybe it's fixable. But yeah, in the situation I was in, it was just like, well, roaches live in the South. So wherever you are, they're just kind of like out there. This has also been the experience. I have a lot of friends who live in New York City and this, and depending on what kind of building you live in, where it is in the city, how old it is, et cetera, like this will be very similar. You just cannot get rid of all of them. But it's cold at least. So it's like not as bad as I guess it is in the South, but pretty bad. Oh yeah, it was really gross. So my point is like, yeah, I think it's like Jack has spent most of his life living in places where roaches were probably not a problem, both because he lives in the north and also because he is, you know, probably living in like pretty nice digs. And 
everything around him is like pretty well taken care of. And presumably he's the kind of person who, if he had a problems, you know, some kind of money would just fix it because that's kind of how his life has been. But some things money can't fix, believe it or not. And perhaps having roaches is one of them. Shitty has a story about how the person in the attic like could be chill because he's social and he's like kind of into that sort of like chaos. You know, he loves inviting like strangers to kegsters and things as do Ransom and Holster, I guess. But also it's like kind of lawyerly, interestingly enough. I don't think this is uh, intentional, but he kind of is basically saying like, I have a story about this. In a way it's like he's giving precedent for like why he's picking his choice. So it's kind of like a like an attorney way of like reading a situation. Biggie doesn't care. And the only angle that like interests him is like how it keeps him from doing the thing that he like wants to do most immediately. So that's very bitty. I think it's cute that Dex is arguing for roaches because like he's very handy. So obviously he probably thinks that like, oh, if there's a problem in the house, like I can just fix it. I also want to note, this is very stupid, but I want to note that when he's arguing with Nursie in the background and you can see that Nursie is, there's a little house in his word bubble and in Dex's you see a little cockroach, it does look a little bit like a lobster and I find that very endearing. Ransom is like overly intense. He's just like screaming, <laughs> which I think is funny. And then um, Lardo has to be the tiebreaker because she's a woman. And also she doesn't like bugs. I do actually think that the fact that she's the tiebreaker and she is the only woman on the bus like does matter as small and silly as it might be because it's again part of this pattern where she's one of the guys but then actually does some, you know, like attic versus roaches emotional labor <laughs> at the end. For lack of a better, a better word, she kind of makes the decision or like keeps the peace in a certain way. She does actually make the decision and it's not full keep the peace because someone feels betrayed and says, hey, too, Lardo. But I do think that's kind of like an interesting place to position her, especially when you bring up that Biddy could have been the person who was questioning the paradigm. Like, I actually think that would have been really interesting for his character. Yeah, Biddy's response is to just be like, y'all have been talking about this since dinner. Like, he's, oh, like, it's boring to him. So he's just like, I, like, I don't even care to interact with this. Also, then again, like, Biddy's parents' house probably has roaches. Like, he's probably used to them just, like, flying around. Oh, yeah, they fly in the South, FYI. Horrible! Oh yeah, no, it's awful. It's awful. Truly, like, I spent so much time crying about, like, the roaches in my life. I was not in a great place because of roaches when I lived in the South. It's also like they've been having this whole argument for a long time and like not only has nobody asked Lardo what she thinks until like the very end of it, but she also hasn't like gotten involved or inserted herself. Like she really hasn't had an opinion up to this point. So it's very just kind of like, yeah, that's how Lardo would be treated by this comic. This has become like a big fandom meme. Nobody I know cares about this and certainly I don't, but like, yeah, it's like a big, it's like a big thing. In the purported check please renaissance that is supposedly happening now or maybe was happening last week, who is to say? This has supposedly become like a topic of conversation again. Not that I've seen anybody talking about this, but I've seen people make posts that have floated by my uh, Tumblr that have been like, wow, y'all can't believe Attic versus Roaches is, is back again. Thanks, check please renaissance. What is the check please renaissance? 
uh, how do I explain this thing that I'm not a part of and also think is dumb? Over the past two or perhaps three weeks, people have been excessively shitposting about check please in kind of like what I think some people in the fandom perceive to be an uptick in activity. And the most central feature of it is people making not very great photo edits of Renaissance paintings with check please characters faces pasted onto them so like here's one of like the birth of venus but it's the birth of dex and dex's face is on i mean this this particular photoshop hatchet job is like really something i am not impressed by this i'm so sorry i realized that like a couple people were kind enough to like link me to some of these posts when I like ask somebody, but I don't think this is like good or interesting or funny or clever. Like on no level does this amuse me at all. Like just taking like old master paintings and like lasso tooling like people's faces into them with like no context and and not with any kind of like particular meaning is not what I am entertained by, but alongside these like photo edits, and there's more I can like link to you later. I'm too lazy to keep copying and pasting them into our ch- chat box. Alongside these photo edits, yeah, there have been some like posts that have like amassed a couple hundred notes along the lines of like reopening Attic versus Roaches as a topic of conversation? Or are the hockey coaches of of the Samwell team in a gay relationship? What if they were? None of it is anything that's like interesting to me. I will say that I do get a kick out of these ridiculous edits, except that the combination of realistic bodies and cartoon faces, I find this really horrifying. So I'm having a problem enjoying them because of that. But I'm getting more of a kick out of it than you are. But I don't understand what's happening or why this is happening. But all right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just like people are like bored and like online too much of the day. And just like everybody's like hungry for just like some kind of content. And these are really easy to produce. And it's just like, if you Google like Renaissance painting, you can find like almost anything. And here's where I guess it's worth like reminding people that like, I'm an art historian. So to me, it's like, okay, well, why are you doing this? I'm not saying you shouldn't like iterate the birth of Venus, but it's like, why are you comparing decks from the comic check, please? to like Aphrodite being birthed on a clamshell in Roman mythology as interpreted by Botticelli in the High Renaissance. What, what context there illuminates either of those two things through this particular mashup? And I think the answer is nothing. It's just people who are bored like, and they have the lasso tool. I disagree. Obviously, this is a commentary that Dex is a Renaissance man, as we see when he fixes uh, Betsy. And so, like Aphrodite, Dex is the embodiment of love and passion in that moment. There you go. I've done it. I don't understand art history, just for everyone to remember that. 
but I think I've cracked it. I think I've cracked the case. No, I mean, it's just, here's the thing. Like, I don't want to shit on people for doing whatever it is that they need to do to like keep themselves entertained. And if people are getting joy out of this, uh, up to and including tomato, you know what, go for it. Like do whatever you need to do to like keep yourself from going just batshit crazy. Everything sucks. What can you do? But that doesn't mean that I have to like it. I can support you and your hobbies and also think it's stupid and dumb. So you're basically that one guy during the American Revolution whose name I forgot, and I've also forgotten the thing that he said, but it's about how I'll defend to death your right to say it, et cetera, et cetera. Who's that guy? No, because I think that's like a, a libertarian like political position. I'm just saying like, yeah, people, I don't begrudge people like being amused by whatever, go for it. It's just like, I'm not amused by it. No, you don't have to be. Um, I also vastly mixed up two different things that two different people said at very different times of history. So uh, I take it back. First, they came for the photo manips. (laughs) Oh no. Patrick Henry, secret OMG. Perfect. Yeah, that definitely wasn't said by Patrick Henry. No. You want to know what's so interesting is that every quote was from the same person and it's check please. That's the check please renaissance. To this day, people people continue to discuss attic versus roaches. Yeah, just just one of many things like senior bun and ugh, probably some other garbage that I just don't find charming or interesting. Moving on, a question I do want to just briefly touch on is what is this strip? Like, initially, when you were talking a few uh, comics ago, or a few podcasts about comics ago, about how there's a narrative rest immediately following the Parse arc with Shinny and then Junior Show, I actually think that this comic is probably like a transition point between that narrative rest and like the kind of like fast-paced like plot that's going to follow through the rest of this particular year of the comic. I initially had assumed that this first post one strip that we're talking about now was part of the like acceleration of the plot toward the end of year two. But I actually don't think it is because if you totally removed it, it would not change anything. There's no actual thematic or storyline relevance to this strip. It's just an introduction of the exposition that they're in the playoffs. And also there's some like jovial hockey team antics happening in the background. Yeah, I I do agree that it is sort of like an introduction that playoffs exist and they're in it. So really all you need is that one speech bubble and that could be placed in another strip pretty easily. But I do think it's designed to be endearing, even though it didn't work on you and doesn't work that well on me. Um, And I think it's also supposed to evoke the early Askewellies. I don't remember when the extras started to slow down as intensely, but I think it's around this time. And certainly by the time year three rolls around, the extras are just not nearly as present. And when they are present, they're usually on the Patreon blog. So before they kind of eventually roll out to the rest of the readers. So I think this strip is designed to kind of serve the same emotional purpose as some of those early Askewellies. Yeah, there are definitely some early Askawellies that are about Biddy's vlog and he's sitting on the bus talking about his vlog and then the other characters are like, how many people follow your vlog? Why won't you give us the URL or whatever? So I think that, uh, and there's also a few things about like, you know, have any of you guys made out and then Ransom and Holster are, are like making a weird face at each other that's happening on the bus. So yeah, it's kind of like a callback to, I think, that setting. But also it's just this kind of jovial like team hanging out energy 
energy that we are not going to get a lot more of in this comic because that kind of period of it that's mostly related to year one is sort of winding down. But I think we noticed reading year one that it actually wasn't even that present in year one. It was mostly present in the extras. Yeah, I think that's true as well. But like Jack and Shitty, who are sort of the core of this like initial cohort are about to like not be in this setting anymore. So it's kind of the last moment to like spend this kind of time with them. And then some uh, fun grab bag uh, mentions. Holster's wearing a robe on the bus and there's some more talk about this like who will be captain ransom versus holster stuff. They both give quotes to the newspaper and they're sort of like mutually complimentary slash doubting about which of them is more captain-y or like leader-y. The detail about Holster's robe came from an actual video that Ngozi links in the blog post to the Harvard hockey team 24-7, which was modeled on the NHL 24-7 videos, I guess, coming out at that time. You can watch them yourself and you can discover how boring college hockey team players really are. But that one kid really does wear a robe on the bus. Good for him. I really presume that if people haven't, from Chuck plays, figured out that hockey players are pretty boring, then I don't know what to tell them. Here's something I want to just briefly mention that's relevant to something we talked about a long time ago, but not so much this strip, is that there's a vaguely recent book that I've just become aware of about how Athens, Georgia is a cool place. It's called Cool Town, how Athens, Georgia launched alternative music and changed American culture. And the two most popular bands that you're probably aware of that came out of Athens, Georgia, sort of around the like new wave trending into alternative movement are the B-52s and R.E.M. But there are a few other sort of lesser remembered like cool bands of the sort of like 1980s and early 90s like college radio circuit that came out of the Athens Georgia scene and I bring this up because way back at the beginning of the comic we sort of talked about like why Biddy is so insistent on playing hockey to be at Samwell and like what's the worst that could have happened if he had just stayed in Georgia and the worst that could have happened is he would have ended up going to like UGA in Athens Georgia. I'm not saying Athens, Georgia isn't in Georgia. I'm not saying that he wouldn't be surrounded by a lot of people from his hometown, as one of our listeners suggested. And I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve to get out of Georgia. But yeah, Athens, Georgia is like a cool alternative, like college town. Like obviously, like any college town, it has its like component of frat boys. But if you're interested in learning a little bit more about like you know, what Biddy's life might have been like if he had been forced to stay in Georgia. There are, you know, there's this, there's this interesting new book that looks cool and I may give it a read, even though I've been to Athens, Georgia and, you know, it's fine. But I'm sure if you actually live there and you like put the effort into, you know, tapping into the scene that you want to be a part of, you can probably have like a much richer experience. My experience involved attending a wedding and going to brunch on a different trip. 
And I walked up to the like Occupy Athens, Georgia protest and asked them how it was going. And they were like, it's going great. This is obviously in the 2010s. I've never been to Georgia, but I feel like you just painted me a beautiful portrait. Thank you. I feel like I was there. One day when all of this is not happening anymore, we will go to Georgia and we will have the best like 48 hours. I think that would be fantastic. Also, we got to go to Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. Also, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is great, too. It's just like our big check, please, road trip. <laughs> it's just like Montreal, Pittsburgh, like Providence, Rhode Island, Georgia. Yeah. I think that would be great. We got to plan it. No it's problem podcast, but maybe you'll get a, a, a real exciting ramble while we're on a train trip one of these days. This is all completely abstract because who's to say when any of us will be able to go anywhere? But I think that's it for this particular strip, at least for me. Yeah, I got nothing to add except this book looks cool. Yeah, it does. It looks like a cool book. Next time, we will be looking at 2.13, Post 2, Frozen 4, where something begins to start being discussed about potentially happening, maybe. I have been secret, and if you want to talk to me about things that potentially will happen, maybe, you can check me out at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R on Tumblr, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G, or read my fic about Roman portraiture on Familiar at AO3. It's very good. Wait, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say it's not really about Roman portraiture. Roman portraiture is thematically tied in via the title. You'll know. You will. It's very good. All right. I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or in AO3 at tomato underscore greens, where I haven't written about Roman portraiture, but I did write about, wait, no, I, I did write about a Roman copy of a Greek statue that Biddy gave to Kent Parson before he and Jack had a threesome with him. So like, go wild with that, I guess. You can find us at checkdispleased.tumblr.com or on Podbean or on Spotify. I've just realized I'm confused about why this strip is called post one and the next one's called post two and the third one's called post three. Because they're in the post season. Oh, that's, I'm stupid. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's easily explained. All right, I guess that's all I got. Yeah, guys, we'll be back here. We'll be back here for the Frozen Four. Will they win? Question mark. They don't, spoiler. See you then. Bye. Bye. Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.